Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way to keep on top of all the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day, with our free email newsletter, our handy smartphone app, and of course, at the website at subchina.com. We've got great regular columns like my favorite, Chinese Corner, which tells you what China is reading and talking about this week. And there are challenging China-themed quizzes and in-depth explainers and a whole lot more. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I am in Washington, D.C. This week, I am joined remotely, and I do mean remotely, from an island of Fiji in the South Pacific by that lovable scamp Jeremy Goldcorn, editor-in-chief of SubChina. Jeremy, what, what island are you on? Suva Suva. It's the second biggest island. Okay, okay. Of, uh, three three hundred odd islands. It's it's going to sound to the listeners who are hearing these podcasts over the space of weeks or months like you've been in Fiji forever, but actually, no. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing, <laughs> but uh, don't worry, I cannot actually take that much time off uh, from the newsletter or away from my beloved Nashville, and this is actually the fourth podcast we have taped while I'm here. Hopefully, the last. Please, so. <laughs> I get more of these out of you when you're on vacation than I do when you're not. (laughs) Well, SubChina does have a very generous vacation policy, but yeah, Jeremy has actually only been gone a week, believe it or not. Anyway, don't worry. We are all managing without you, and uh, we want you to enjoy yourself, so I promise I'm not going to schedule any more podcasts with you. Uh, Now, won't you greet the people? Excellent. Thank you, Kaiser, and hello, people from lovely Fiji which I am going to recommend right away you visit if you get a chance. Okay. I No, I, I've never been there. I've never, in fact, uh, I've, I've only been to the North Pacific, to Hawaii. Anyway, uh, let's jump right in. A few months ago, my former intern, Eric Meisterino, was uh, at a conference at SAIS in D.C. He's studying Chinese investment in East Africa at NC State. Uh, and he heard a talk by a young scholar that made quite an impression on him. Uh, something reminded him of it recently, and then suddenly he looked up a video uh, of the conference on YouTube, found it, and sent me the link. And uh, I watched it and was like, oh, my God, I got to pass this on to Jeremy. So I did, um, and he agreed that it would make for something terrific for, for, for both me and the cynical listenership, right? Uh, but, hey, I was ready to book this guy for the show just based on the title of the talk, which was, Fist of Fury, Kung Fu Master Gao, and the Cinification of Malagasy Politics. I mean, right? <laughs> so I, I reached out to the, the, the presenter whose name is Jackson Miller. Uh, he's a master's candidate at the Harvard Kennedy School's public policy program. And now he's here to tell us uh, this remarkable story. Jackson Miller, welcome to Seneca. Thanks, Kaiser. Thanks, Jeremy. It's great to be here. Jackson, yeah, welcome, and I'm really sorry I couldn't be there in person. Um, no, you're not. Before... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you could have arranged it on a different day, Kaiser. But um, before starting your program at the Kennedy School, Jackson, you worked as a researcher for some different NGOs looking at the illicit trafficking of natural resources out of Africa, and it was in researching one such case that you came to learn about Kung Fu Master Gao. Can you tell us about this case uh, when you were tracking down the people behind a huge shipment of rosewood from Madagascar and about the man who calls himself Lord of Gamblers, whom you encountered on your way to discovering Gao? No, absolutely. Um, so over four years ago to this date, right, May 2014, um, over 600 tons of illicit Malagasy rosewood was seized by Kenyan port authorities in Mombasa. So these 600 tons, I want to say 
um, approximately 50 containers or so, made it from Madagascar to Zanzibar and Tanzania. And then authorities in Kenya rerouted the shipment to seize the, the illicit goods. Our organization based in D.C., right, we map these supply chains in support of U.S. law enforcement agencies who are basically spread so thin they don't have time to look at these cases, right? I mean, you can only expect so much when you have one analyst sitting in an agency with a global portfolio looking at this stuff on a half-time basis, right? Anyway, we got the shipping manifests and the documentation, and several Hong Kong-based firms were listed as the importers of this 600-ton shipment of timber. And looking through the Hong Kong business registries, looking at the mainland Chinese business registries, as well as company records in Madagascar, we were able to identify the the director, the beneficial owner of this company. And lo and behold, his phone number and an email came up on a QQ profile. Now, QQ, right, I guess, how would you describe it? Just a, a messaging app. A messaging yeah, just a messaging system. app. But this guy, um, his username wasn't his real name. It, it translated to Gambling Lord. And he lists himself as the owner of five casinos on Madagascar, plus some construction firms based in Hong Kong and Southeast China. And he even dresses himself up in this powder blue tuxedo, <laughs> given the fiercest, uh, fiercest smug look to the camera as his profile picture. And then, yeah, the I just went into my own little rabbit hole. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a that's a rabbit hole unto its own, right? I mean, uh, why wouldn't he just stop there? Because this guy already sounds like he'd be worthy of another podcast. So you know, oh, completely. <laughs> gambling lord uh do you, do you happen to remember his actual name yeah so it, it's listed on several other public facing reports at this point it's a uh, yao bao born in fujian china currently based in madagascar and again lists himself as not only the director of five different casinos but also several chambers of commerces which i guess we can delve into later some um, overseas Chinese, but as well as American Chamber of Com- Chambers of Commerce as well, even though he himself is not American. Um, yeah. Huh. Was he, uh, did he come to, to justice? Were you able to, uh, they bring this guy to heel? You know, uh, time will tell. It's still ongoing. Yeah, I'm not really sure where the case stands. <laughs> yeah. Well, the reason, I mean, really, the reason why I was able to present this material is that is because the case was stalled. Right. Ah, I see. So, yeah. So, I mean, even though justice may or may not be served, there's still a lot of interesting stuff to talk about here. So the trail went directly from this Yao Bao guy to Gao, to uh, our main character, Kung Fu Master Gao Jose Rama Harrison. Yeah. So it went from Yao Bao to Gao. Um, Yao Bao to Gao. Okay. Yeah. But before we get into the actual story of this Kung Fu Master, I think we I maybe ought to talk a little bit about Madagascar itself. I think. Probably a lot of our, our listeners are smart folks. They're probably aware uh, that owing to its very long isolation from the African continent and, and the fact that actually, you know, the island broke off of India and, and you know, from Gondwana land, from what was, you know, the part of Gondwana land that was India. And it drifted across the Indian Ocean over, you know, tens of millions of years. Uh, tens of millions of back to Africa. Back to Africa, yeah. <laughs> Return to Africa. Right, uh, I, love and, how, I love how we're. Re- I love how we both refer to the same uh, geography briefings on Madagascar and prep for this conversation. Um, yeah, no, yeah. It's, it's pretty funny. That uh, no, I think that's it's pretty common knowledge that this is like what explains its bizarre flora and fauna. Right? Absolutely, right, right. Uh, I mean, I remember reading somewhere that that like 
a huge percentage of the flora and fauna of Madagascar only exist in Madagascar. Uh, something, something like right. that. Right. That's the reason why uh, its flora and fauna are so so valuable. It's because they're so unique. So today, how much illicit trade in tropical hardwoods and other things, you know, rare plants and animals, is is coming out of Madagascar, and how much of that? Uh, is being driven by Chinese interlocutors or Chinese, you know, end consumers? Right. I mean, th- those are two great questions. I mean, to be perfectly frank, from my understanding, even though a stream of insanely dedicated NGOs and multilateral agencies have tried measuring the trade out of Madagascar, the supply chain itself rarely makes the books. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, the actual allocation of concessions, the actual inventory of the of the rosewood itself, it, it's rarely formally registered, right? And so usually what happens is that um, you'll have a proliferation of a very small scale or artisanal operations, right, of just people operating in very small groups, chopping down the wood, transporting the wood by foot, dragging these huge logs from the forest to the beaches and you'll have these incredibly massive stockpiles on the beach carried out to ships to cargo ships that never actually dock in Malagasy ports now I can't say never but more often there than not these ships that actually transport these hundreds of tons of illicit goods actually never reach Malagasy shores right it's done completely offshore right. um, and and like I said earlier right these these shipments don't go directly to consumer markets right they transship or they, they change ports along the way this is a very common way to hide, you know, who actually owns and who's actually driving this trade, right? If it goes from Madagascar to another island to another island and then to Hong Kong and on the way to Hong Kong, right, probably going through, you know, Singapore and Malaysia. So it's incredibly difficult. And with that said, because Madagascar is so just diverse um, in itself, in terms of the people that actually inhabit the island, it becomes even more difficult to attribute a certain percentage of the trade to, let's say, Chinese-led syndicates, right? Because you also have a really eclectic mix of you know, nefarious actors operating on the island. Uh, Jackson, may I ask you um, to confirm a, a brief history of the, eth- uh, the the people who live in Madagascar? As I understand it, they're the descendants of migrants from Southeast Asia, probably Borneo, mixed up with uh, the blood of newer arrivals from mainland Africa and the Arabian Peninsula. And the Malagasy language itself is not, in fact, an African Bantu tongue, but rather uh, of Malayo-Polynesian origin. That's is exactly that right. all about right? No, that that is, yeah, and so and to your and to your earlier points, right? So over time, not only do you have this mixing between, let's say, Southeast Asian, Austronesian blood mixed with um, Bantu populations from the African continent, but to your earlier point, right, you have, you know, the South Asian Arab maritime traders coming in from Oman down the Swahili coast along East Africa, landing in northern Madagascar in, let's say, the 12 and 1300s. Then you have both French, Portuguese, and other European colonial powers coming into the island, really disrupting the economy and the politics through the trade in enslaved Malagasies. And then, you know, you have several waves of Chinese migrants, right? So first, in the 18th and 19th century, right, bringing in Chinese populations from both mainland China, but also Chinese populations in Southeast Asia for plantation labor, and then other kind of spikes closer to to the present day. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I was just talking to somebody who was telling me that 
the population of these people are, I, I, you, Jeremy, you had said Borneo, I heard some Sumatra, but they, that definitely spoke a Bahasa language. And it was actually 800 to 900 AD that they were not originally on Madagascar. They were actually in, on the mainland of Africa in what was, I guess now is Mozambique and uh, Tanzania and were pushed out eventually. Uh, I think they, they were pushed out and they ended up settling on uh, Madagascar in, I think, the 11th or 12th century. Is that, does that sound right? Uh, it sounds right. Uh, I'm, uh, yeah, unfortunately, I'm not a Malagasy historian, but, uh, but I'm not going to question, question you on really, that. Really, really interesting place. Uh, I've never been, but uh, you know, uh, I know at least one fantastically talented Malagasy guitar player who really had so much to do with shaping Cui Jian's sound. Uh, it's a little aside on the Beijing rock scene. Actually, if I may interject, it's actually the, the guitar industry and the music industry itself that has actually ri- ri- what is it risen a lot of awareness around the illicit rosewood trade right ah, because right. many of these many of these natural hardwoods that are only found in Madagascar would be sourced to you know make very you know, rare and luxury instruments and so a lot of musicians in in the states and in the west have have really tried raising this issue to um yeah, it's in the public limelight. Jeremy, do you think there might be an Eddie connection here then? <laughs> <laughs> that guy has always been a little shady to me, man. <laughs> awesome. Um, Jackson, so now we've kind of established what Madagascar is. Can you give us an overview of China's relationship with uh, the island nation over the past few decades? Absolutely. So, um, so China and Madagascar established bilateral relations in 1972. So in that moment, right, we're in the, the last several years of the Maoist era in China. But in Madagascar, the political system had actually gone through a series of very dramatic upheavals. So Madagascar is, uh, you know, as many of Seneca's listeners know, is a, um, was a former French colony gained independence from France in 1960. But the first administration, right, I mean, sure, Madagascar was nominally independent, but really the the first regime essentially was handpicked by French authorities, if you Mm. will. But it wasn't until around 1972, 12 years later, that a series of protests and social instability really compelled that first president to step down. And really, it was after the installation of a Marxist socialist major general, five months after that, that's when China and Madagascar established these bilateral ties. And for the next couple of decades, Madagascar, I guess, sought to to nationalize its economy and align itself with essentially the Eastern Bloc during the Cold War. I guess for the next decade or in the 1980s, that experiment, I guess, turned turned south. And Madagascar went to institutions like the IMF to essentially inject some capital. But of course, that comes with a lot of conditions that people were not happy about. And so in the early 1990s, a decade after these initial reforms, Madagascar went through a tremendous amount of political upheaval. Hundreds of thousands of people protested the streets in the early 90s. The president, Zafi Albert, who basically ascended to the presidency after declaring himself the leader of a shadow government for a good 18 months. And when he became the president, Madagascar um, implemented a new constitution that, I guess by name, 
emphasized human rights and fair elections and an open economy. And that's what actually sparked another spike in Chinese immigration to Madagascar. And that's around the time that this Kung Fu Master Go actually came to the island. And a few years later, there was actually a, an immigration agreement that was signed between China and Madagascar. Okay, I think it's a good time to introduce the story that, that got me so interested, the story of Kung Fu Master Gao. Uh, starting with, you know, who was this guy in the early 1990s? Uh, where was he from? Why the heck did he decide at the age of 23 to just basically go to Madagascar on a one-way ticket? I mean, to be frank, I mean, yeah, he's a he's a special guy, but when he decided to buy a plane ticket to Madagascar, he really wasn't anyone special or significant in China, right? So he's from the northeastern province of Liaoning, I believe, and Shen. And he really just, he had trouble finding a job. And he couldn't be supported by his family. And I, I believe right around this time that Madagascar was opening itself up to the rest of the world, he decided to, to try his luck. And he bought a one-way plane ticket to Madagascar. Uh, four months later, after you know applying to job after job, he was actually mugged by a group of much larger Malagasy men. And just as a Kung Fu master should, he defended himself. Um, <laughs> and I guess beat the out of these guys in front of a huge crowd of people. And this story, I guess, according to Gao's own accounts that are online, it went viral before the age of social media. So it made um, national headlines immediately. And there were all these questions swirling around, you know, who is this random Kung Fu master? I mean, this is a this is a guy, again, he, he didn't know anyone on the island, not even the you know, tens of thousands of Chinese that had been, you know, living on the island for generations at this point. But it caught so much attention that a couple months after the incident, he was granted a personal audience with President Zafi Albert. Ah, so we, we, uh, let me let me back up for a second here and learn a little bit more about this guy. Was he an educated guy? So I, I've been trying to to confirm that, um, and I don't I don't think so. Okay. I don't think he he was. He's I mean, a he worker. Might, yeah, he's a work. Yeah, I mean, Anshan's a big steel town, so he's like a steel guy. Yeah, absolutely. No, he's um background in in man, in sort of manual labor, traditionally blue collar. Um, but obviously spent a lot of his time at the at, at the, the gym, martial arts, right. at the what was it, the dojo. Right. Was he was he somebody with any kind of notoriety as a martial artist in China before he left? Um, if so, it would have been hyper localized. Wow. Not enough to to make any um headway on you know open source open source media. And um, how long was he in Madagascar before he became the world's most fortunate mugging victim? It was just like months? Right. So this, well, I mean, this fortune was built up over time, right? So in terms of his first audience with the president, it was likely between four to eight months. So let's say around six months. <laughs> um, he all of a sudden found himself in the president's office. And, you know, you have to wonder why did this isolated incident garner so much attention? And really, we have to look at President Albert's political interests, right? So he just came to the presidency after hundreds of thousands of people had been protesting the streets after the previous regime's forces essentially fired on the crowds. Those memories don't go away, right? right? They don't just disappear over time. And even though he was in opposition to to the previous president, just like so many other groups, one of the most unpredictable groups were these young 
leftist radicals called the Kung Fu operatives. Um, so it's highly likely that um, Zafi Albert was doing his own due diligence, inviting this guy, this you know Chinese Kung Fu master in to assess out whether or not you know Kung Fu master Gao was actually operating on behalf of potential political threats. The Kung Fu operatives. I, I, yeah, um, it's it's pretty amazing. Um, you can't, you just can't make this up. <laughs> and um, and so when um, when it turns out that wasn't true, um, Gao was hired on as the trainer to the presidential guard. And um, he was able to maintain this position for at least the next decade. And then he became a senior military advisor and a special advisor to um, the next presidents. Oh, so uh, how long was Zafi Albert in power before I mean, he, he was in power from what years to what years? So I believe from uh, from 1992 to around 2001. Okay. Um yeah, apologies if I'm if I'm mixing up. A and so he years. he managed to to transfer his his status to the next administration. Essentially, yeah, I think that's 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 the most remarkable part of this guy's this guy's narrative on Madagascar, right? You know, he's been able to afford himself some distance, right? And whether or not he was able to, I don't know, leverage his Chineseness in a way to say, hey, you know, I'm actually not really allied to anyone. Um, you can trust me to basically buffer himself. So no matter who was actually in the president's office, he was able to be right at that man's side. So give us a sense of Gao's actual power and his influence in Madagascar now. I mean, is he a household name there? Uh, does he live in a massive mansion? Does he have a, a fleet of Mercedes and like a bunch of armed thugs? Or what? what <laughs> how powerful is this guy? I mean, am I thinking like Mexican cartel lord or... I mean, it's pretty, no, I mean, I don't, I don't blame you for doing so. So it's, it's definitely, it's a, you know, he's an advisor, right? So, so that's a, that's a quiet power that, that, uh, that implies a lot of influence. So he's actually, according to other researchers, he's led anywhere between five and a dozen bilateral delegations between China and Madagascar over the past decade. He led for those of you who are glued to the TV during the Beijing Olympics in 2008, Gao actually led Madagascar's delegation to the Beijing Olympics. So we've all probably seen this guy on TV. Oh, he, he was marching in, actually marching in the bird's nest. He was marching in the bird's nest in his, because you know how each country has that national uniform, right? Sure. So he was in his safari hat. With his mosquito nest, um, you know, waving to the crowds right next to the athlete, waving the Madagascar flag. Or if he wasn't right next to him, he was very close. Yeah, so we've all seen this guy on TV. Um, oh, yeah. But in terms of what his lifestyle is on Madagascar, I'm st we're still trying to figure figure that out. So what I, what I actually brought here, um, for those of you who are obviously not with us in the room, so I actually have the business register documents to Gao's 40 companies registered with the Ministry of Justice that list his personal address. But really, it's it's either there's there's two or three locations listed. It's either in random apartment buildings or in certain hotels co-managed by other associates of Chinese descent on uh, the island. I was going to whip out Google Maps and see the Google. I've been that's been my life for the past three years, Kaiser. Right, just just manipulating Google Maps and trying to figure out where this guy is. Um, Daxon, uh, could I sort of uh, tease that out a bit more? I mean, of course, is he rich? Um, I, I don't quite have a sense of has he made a lot of money. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, if he's not, I mean, so if he hasn't made a lot of money, he's definitely diversified his assets, again, across, you know, at least three dozen businesses, um, co-signed with senior level politicians, um, senior level banking officials across Madagascar. But he's really also diversified his reach, not only in the Rosewood sector, but also in the real estate, minerals, um, and other agriculture and logistics and trading sectors, right? I mean, this is just, again, this is according to Ministry of Justice records in Madagascar. So he is a power player. I, I, I think you've um, sort of mentioned how you were able to figure out some of his connections to various deals, you know, the paperwork that you've brought with you. Um, <laughs> did this require real sort of investigative digging on your part? Or was his name just openly all over every deal that had anything to do with China? So it's a, it's a, it's to be perfectly honest, it's a mix of both. So that kind of goes back to all right, how did we go from Yao Bao to Gao? You know, where did this transition happen? Um, and of course, with Yao Bao, right, when you look at these supply chains that reach from Madagascar, transit through Tanzania, onto Hong Kong, and likely to mainland China, you got to back your stuff up with, with a pretty substantial level of evidence, especially if you're bringing this, this information to either U.S. law enforcement or other, or other government officials, right? And so really, it, it was just, it was about combing through uh, corporate registers, combing through official trade data sets, combing through Ministry of Commerce records, and cross-referencing identifying information to really just build out these supply chains. And that's how, one, we got a sense of a reach of Yao Bao's commercial largesse, if you will. But really, what was interesting is that just poking around Chinese media, right, just seeing where Yao Bao's name had come up, Gao appeared in, I couldn't tell you how many photos, not necessarily, you know, he was a guy never at the center never in front of a microphone, but always, you know, to the back end of the corner. But he was in almost every single media appearance that these other subjects of interest appeared in. And that's what kind of got me just just out of plain curiosity. You know, who is this guy that is appearing everywhere, not only with Yao Bao, but also with the president of the Malagasy parliament? Chinese Zeleg of Madagascar. Right, right the Chinese Zeleg. Yeah, and then going from there, right, after you get that name, right, seeing where that comes up in, you know, French language, in, in, in Chinese language, in Hong Kong, U.S., Madagascar, as well as other, as well as other uh, business registers all over the world. I, uh, I saw that, you know, from, from your talk, uh, in the the deck that you had showing in the back, I, I zoomed in. I saw that his name is is uh, Gao Honggang. Yep. And I did a Baidu search on him. I mean, he's all over the place. I mean, there's a Baidu encyclopedia page on this guy. It's it's a uh, it's not a particularly long one, but you know, still there's a Baidu encyclopedia right. page. Right. I mean, he's like the vice president of the African Wushu uh, Martial Arts Federation. He's the chairman of the investment promotion committee of the Democratic Republic of Madagascar to China. I mean, he's got like all these titles. I mean, he's he's all over the place. Yeah. Oh, he's not, he's not keeping a low profile. Oh no, absolutely. Um, and in a way, he doesn't necessarily have to. Um, right? I mean, just consider the, that full name. So, Gao Honggang Jose Rama Harrison. And what's interesting about how that name appears in official documentations, whether it is in Hong Kong, whether it's in Madagascar, is that it's, it's never consistent. Um, so there are literally typos all over the place. And in some <laughs> registers, right, he might be recorded as just Gao Jose. Other times, um, he might just be recorded by his Chinese name. Some company filings list his birthplace as 
Hong Kong when that's not true. Um, some listed as Liaoning, other list just Madagascar because, um, you know, we haven't touched upon this yet, but he technically is a Madagascar national. He's yeah, no yeah. longer a Chinese national. Um, he relinquished his passport. Um, so he's able to, to manipulate, right? He's been, he, uh, you know, these segments of his identity to basically kind of spread his profile so thin that he doesn't, he doesn't appear on the radar as one would expect. So we recently aired a show that we taped in Prague a few months ago. Uh, it strikes me that there are certain similarities to, to what we were talking about there. Uh, that show is about this company called CEFC, and uh, the show is about how its chairman, this guy named Ye Jianmin, had managed to become a special advisor to you know Czech President Miloš Zeman. Uh, and... I, well, he was until he was detained anyway, because he was detained uh, I, earlier this year, presumably because of his shady business dealings, you know, many of which involve, you know, Milos Zeman in the Czech Republic. But yeah, wasn't a Czech citizen, unlike Gao Jose is a, a Malagasy citizen. And, and the capital with which he managed to accrue power and influence in the Czech Republic that some have said comes close to state capture uh was, you know, just that. It was capital. He threw a bunch of money around. He invested in a bunch of companies and, you know, bought a, a soccer team and, and a brewery and all this other stuff. But what about this guy, Kung Fu Master Gao? He had a different sort of capital when he came in, huh? Well, right. I mean, His hands so, and feet. Yeah. So, I mean, you got to look at what what are the priorities of these powerful politicians, right, that essentially gave Gao access to their circles, right? Starting from President Zafi onwards to the present day. And we got to remember, Madagascar politics has gone through, you know, in a, in a matter of three generations, really, ever since independence in 1960s, we've seen essentially just a, a neo-colonial prop of a republic to a Marxist military regime, to several other generals, you know, taking power for from anywhere as short as four days to six month, months at a time, to essentially no government, to, um, you know, democracies, right? So we've seen all of this volatile change, and it's almost normalized at this point that that's the transfer of power in Madagascar. So what does Gao bring to the table, right? He brings a, a, a distinct set of skills that offer not only the president, but his immediate confidants a set of, of physical security, right? And so he's been able to kind of manipulate his kung fu mastery to provide that need to basically supply that demand um, that these that these people were looking for, um, <laughs> at least in one part, right? And then from there, he was able to kind of expand his reach over time, um, not necessarily by throwing a lot of money around, because again, he didn't know anyone on the island, and he didn't come from this powerful family or dynasty or yeah, family, um, you know, back in China, right? This was all on his own. Um, but over time, right, he was able to 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 leverage not only his mastery of kung fu, but also you know his Chinese Chinese language, um, to, and also I guess just cultural competency to basically become this interlocutor between high level Malagasy politicians and Chinese investors willing to bring that capital into the country. So even though that capital wasn't necessarily Gao's to begin with, Gao was able to be to provide that means by which Madagascar was able to get that foreign investment. And he just made himself indispensable now to that whole process. Uh, yeah, I mean, we'll see, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. who knows? I can't, yeah. 
Jackson, I want to ask about the Sino-Malagasy Friendship Leading Small Group that was established in 2015 with Kung Fu Master Gao. He, not surprisingly, was elected Secretary General of the group. Um, I somehow doubt <laughs> leading small groups were really a thing in Malagasy political life. Um, right. So I'm wondering, is this a, a successful case of the export of a feature of the China model, which some say Beijing has been globally advocating of late? Or is this simply shrewd political, cultural maneuvering and marketing by Gao? Or is it just a <laughs> habit of mind, perhaps, formed by all that exposure to Communist Party speak like uh, you can take the Kung Fu master out of the Chinese polity, but you can't take the Chinese polity and propaganda speak out of the Kung Fu master. <laughs> of course. Um, no, I'd say, I'd say D, all, I mean, really all of the above, Jeremy. I mean, so um, that really speaks to the crux of the question in um, my dramatic title for that presentation at Johns Hopkins, right? You know, Fist of Fury. Kung Fu Master Gao and the sinification of Malagasy politics question mark, right? So so when we see the emergence of these leading small groups in Madagascar's legislature from 2015 onward, right, as Chinese investment in Madagascar is, is, is booming, um, you know, is this simply the Chinese state, the PRC injecting its own model of governance into places like Madagascar? And, you know, I'm I understand how convenient that answering yes to that question may be, but what I'd like to argue is it's really, it offers a new set of tools, a new set of rhetoric for local politicians to essentially exert their own power and exert, yeah, and exert their own influence, right? So the members of this leading small group, the Sino-Malagasy Friendship Small Group, they're actually, for the most part, they're all part of a coalition that was formed about four or five years ago at this point in direct opposition to the current president for whom Gao currently advises, right? So it offers a means by which, number one, Gao can selfishly diversify his own political capital, but it also allows the opposition parties to basically work together and collaborate in, or I guess against, um, their political adversaries, right? And so they're drawing from this language that may have originated in China, but they're actually using it for their own political gain. Wow. So the leading small group is actually made up of people who are opposed to the current uh, president, and Gao is playing sort of both sides, he being chairman of this thing. Yeah, but I mean, he's, can he's you hedging. Bl- But can you blame him? No, right? I, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, literally since um, you know, since the turn of the millennium, it's um, been nothing but turmoil, right? Right. It's yeah. been it's been a complete institutional vacuum, and it's in these these political vacuums one can argue that you know black market economies can thrive, and even if it's not you know kung fu master Gao benefiting from let's say the black market trade and commodities like rosewood or you know minerals um you know his associates obviously are um and so yeah so he's just he's 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 um he's spreading his his political capital accordingly wow so, so this is concept that you explore uh that Gao, i think really seems to embody it's something that you call 
flexible citizenship. Uh, I think I get what that means. I, I've definitely met my share of people for whom the pronoun we can refer to, you know, different nationalities in different contexts or even within the same conversation. In fact, I, I'm probably guilty of it at, at one point or another living in China for a long time. Sometimes we means we Chinese. Sometimes we means, you know, we Americans. Right. Uh, I, I try not to do that anymore. But can you talk about what that concept really kind of means and you know do your best not i know there's a temptation to, to get a little academic but we got jeremy on the line here and he's really allergic to academic language so <laughs> i pre- i appreciate that yeah um, right. so really i mean i can't i cannot take the credit for this term um i mean I, I do have to give credit to an academic um her name is um dr Iwa ong she's a sociologist out of uc berkeley um and for those of you who haven't read her work um, she explores this concept in a 1990, um, 1999 book called Flexible Citizenship. Ah. Um, and so really, essentially what it means is it essentially explores, right, um, the, the means by which people can manipulate aspects of their identity around nationhood, around state, um, to basically benefit from whatever political or economic opportunity is in front of them. Like when Jeremy plays the South African card, right? <laughs> yeah, I've been silent all this. I'm not going to say any more. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, Lord. Right. No, but that's exactly right. Yeah, so it's about... Oh, and and Gao really does embody this, right? So so like, like we mentioned earlier, Gao technically is not a Chinese national. He has a Madagascar passport. It wasn't until he actually acquired a Madagascar passport that these delegations from China actually were able to come into the country, right? So even uh. though Gao could not access any of these high-profile or you know rich and powerful business networks in China while he was there, he had to take on you know Malagasy nationality to essentially access those networks, right? So he was able to manipulate that part of his identity to benefit for his own personal gain. Jackson, did you at some point manage to interview the guy? So I have not interviewed him personally. Some of my sources, some really dedicated investigative journalists as well as researchers have interviewed him. Oh, okay. Yes. Jackson, I've lived now in the United States for uh, almost three years. So of course, I'm an expert on the average American. So I'm going to submit that to the average American hearing that a Chinese emigre landing in Madagascar and quickly rising from vagabond kung fu master to special advisor to the president and president of the National Assembly, there must be some dark forces at work, some foul play, some evil communist plot. Is this mere prejudice, just preconceived notions about the China-Africa relationship or something else? So I think I think it does. I mean, to a certain extent, you're right. Like this this Godfather, this triad. Um, and excuse me, you'll note yeah. I used my flexible citizenship to uh, <laughs> propose something uh, that Americans uh, think and then pretend it's not me. Hey, I don't blame you. Welcome to the to the 2010s. Yeah. So I think um, what is it? Um, I think you touched upon some really interesting points. I can't. So for this particular case, because there was essentially an instance of illicit activity, right? And because the the research was for a law enforcement audience, you gotta you gotta meet a pretty high standard of evidence for any of this to clear anything, right? Right. But 
what I will say is that the interest by which, I guess, energy or momentum or just, again, sheer interest itself is generated around these cases, that can stem, you know, that doesn't exist in isolation, right? It exists in in context, right? Yeah. It exists in political and historical context. And and to your earlier point, right, the fact that, you know, this guy was able to to spark a you know, this awe-striking rise from, you know, essentially a political nobody to sitting at the right hand of the president in Madagascar over a decade and a half. I think the the suspicion that is is created around that, it does speak to a rather xenophobic or a yellow peril archetype, if you will. Um, this kind of invasion of, you know, it might not be a lot of Chinese people, but it's a lot of Chinese capital, right? Just flooding the, flooding this, you know, opaque market. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So, so what does the story of this man's rise tell us, if anything, about patterns in the relationship between China and various African countries? Or, or is it such an outlier, so totally unique that, that we should be wary about taking any lessons from this case? No, so that's a, that's a great question. I think there, there's two ways, there's two lessons to, to glean, at least from my opinion, in terms of just, just drilling down on this, this single guy's or this single man's life narrative, right? Number one, it calls for us to break away from these overly generalized or macro level approaches to China Africa affairs, right? I mean, what is, you know, when we say China, are we, are we just talking about the Chinese state? Are we talking about the Communist Party? Are we just talking about mainland China? Where, what is the scope of this, this idea of China that we're talking about? And the African continent, right? I mean, with, you know, with, you know, 54, 55 countries, and, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of languages, by 2050, population of 1.2 billion on the continent will double, right? I mean, how can we still be talking about China-Africa affairs in such broad terms? So Gao's life story provides a window to, to push beyond that. And really, the way that he's able to manipulate these aspects of his identity, you see other case studies emerging across the continent. Whether, I mean, so for instance, in Uganda, there's a real estate tycoon, her name is Fong Min. Um, she came to East Africa in the 1970s with her husband and moved to Uganda from Kenya because Kenya was, quote, too crowded and there were already so many Chinese people there. And that was actually from a personal interviewer, <laughs> interview her with her um, at her hotel. And she was generous to, to offer that at, you know, midnight or 1 a.m. But she herself is also, she is a Ugandan citizen right now. And she's been able to diversify her assets across real estate and potentially mining and oil interests as well. She, at the same time, even though she has a Ugandan passport, she also has participated in several political conferences back in mainland China. She also is a key, I guess, investment manager for Chinese investors coming in. And she directs the Uganda chapter for the Council for Peaceful Reunification of China. Um, yeah, essentially a China-Taiwan reunification cohort. She manages a Uganda the chapter. The all-important Uganda chapter. Right? Um, and then even further west, right, you have um, personalities like David Chow, 
who's a casino magnate, originally from Macau. He's in Cabo Verde, and he is quite literally island building right now. Just not necessarily just like what we're seeing in the South China Sea, but we're seeing this in the Atlantic. And he's calling these new hotel and port projects as as part of the Belt and Road. Um, of course he is. Right. I mean, <laughs> why wouldn't he? No, exactly. The Belt and Road, this is such a compelling brand. So number one, it, it'll be interesting for us to see where this brand will appear, um, not necessarily from the Chinese state, but from individual individual actors across the African continent. Gao himself back in Madagascar was called a belt and a road for the country by then Chinese the then Chinese ambassador in 2010 to Madagascar. Was even before Belt and Road was a big thing. Yeah. Right, exactly. And so with that leads me to my second point is it'll this will provide, right, examining the lives of essentially cosmopolitan figures like Gao provide us a window or a new means by which we can map the full extent of the Belt and Road. Not necessarily by, you know, who's saying that, you know, yes, I am affiliated with this uber large infrastructure or matrix of infrastructure projects, right? But really, it'll be interesting to see how the Chinese government reacts to these independent entrepreneurs claiming on their own terms, on their own time, that they are part of this initiative, right? Because the Chinese state, it technically doesn't have to respond, right? These are Malagasy citizens, these are Ugandan nationals, and these are Cabo Verdeans saying that they're from the Belt and Road. So that doesn't necessitate a response. However, it gives it gives the Chinese state a bit of, you know, at least that choice to say, well, sure, all right, um, this could be part of the Belt and Road. And, you know, just this past weekend, right, um, while Xi Jinping was in Senegal, visiting the president, there were a set of bilateral deals claiming that now Senegal is part of the Belt and Road Initiative, right? So to what extent was that done in conjunction with the Chinese community there? Yeah, that's something to to explore further. Hmm. Would you be able to characterize the Communist Party or the party state's attitude to people like Gao, David Chow, or uh, the lady uh, in Fang Uganda? Me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, I mean, that's, I mean, t- right. I mean, I'm a, I guess I'm, I'm using my flexible citizenship as, as an American, right? Reporting from DC. Um, it's our prerogative. <laughs> right. Um, so I'm not, no, so I'm not sure, but I don't know, I don't know if it's possible to, to, to essentially assign sort of a categorical characterization or a categorical, um, opinion on what the Chinese state ha- can or cannot say around these guys, right? Um, they kind of have full, they kind of have a carte blanche to, to do whatever they want because these are not state actors, right? They're just individuals. Um, so they don't need to have an opinion. That's, 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 that's very fair. Uh, my last question is, I mean, why hasn't everyone been writing about this? This is just such a wacky and wonderful story. I mean, journalists who are listening to this show, you got to get on this, man. I mean, this is worth a Wall Street Journal A-head style piece for sure, yeah. <laughs> right, Jeremy? Oh, yeah. No, it's fascinating stuff. Yeah. yeah I mean, Kaiser, this question has been on my mind s- since May 2014. I got right? two words for you. Movie rights. Oh, man. All right. Yeah. I know what I know what my homework is tonight. Um, the martial arts. You got you know the whole mugging scene. You got the r- r- crazy ride. It would be like Scarface meets um, J- a Jackie Chan film. No, and, and then and then throwing a bunch of throwing a bunch of lemurs and and Malagasy wildlife yeah. in the background, and you got yeah you got yourself a, a show. But back to your question, you know why haven't we been writing about? this guy, um, when he's been on the island for decades. Um, and I think there's, there's two reasons behind this, right? So number one, 
like we've been saying, Madagascar politics and history, it's, it's incredibly volatile, right? So it, it's, it's almost like as soon as political scientists or, you know, maybe subject matter experts can finally get a grasp on, you know, what is going on, let's say politically or economically in the country, everything changes. And we're not just talking about people coming in and out of power. We're talking about the fundamentals of those political institutions breaking down and building themselves back up into something brand new, whether it's a military regime, whether it's a Marxist style government, a multi-party democracy, or, you know, a neo-colonial kind of puppet regime, right? We've, we've seen it all in Madagascar. So that, that kind of forces everyone to kind of dial it back. And then in complete contrast to that, right, instead of looking at the politics and the, and the social histories of Madagascar, you come, you come to the island and to our earlier points, right? And it's a biodiversity hotspot. There's so much, I want to say, in the ballpark of you know, 30 to 50% at least of Madagascar's plant and wildlife, you can't find anywhere else in the world. So that offers a lot of researchers, that offers a lot of journalists, that offers a lot of I don't know, NGOs, this wealth of potential new and innovative body of work to build. And so, unfortunately, I don't have sort of citation indexes to back this claim up, but I would like to argue that Madagascar's biodiversity has provided such wealth of new research that that's dominated the way we engage with Madagascar politics, right? So so we kind of cast Madagascar's volatile politics aside to focus on, right, what's going on in the forests and what's going on with the with the unique wildlife. Um, and you even see this, right, in plenty of study abroad programs. Um, they might be hyper-specialized, but the, the kinds of programs that are offered in Madagascar, they're environmental-based, right? What right, can we right. learn about natural resource management and wildlife? We don't necessarily interrogate the political dynamics of it all. Great, great. That was uh, amazing. And thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us about this bizarre, very fascinating story. Uh, I hope there's more where that came from and that you can uh, come share more stories with us again soon, Jackson. No, uh, thank you. Thank you, Kaiser. And thank you, Jeremy, for having me. Our pleasure. Let's move on now to recommendations, but before we do that, I do want to remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SupChina. Sign up for our email newsletter, or better still, cough up a few bucks a month and show your support by becoming a Premium Access member, which entitles you to all sorts of goodies, including ad-free versions of this very podcast. And if you like this podcast, please do leave us a positive review on the iTunes Store. Thanks in advance. On to recommendations. Jeremy, you kick us off. Okay, I have two. Uh, firstly, I think everyone should visit Madagascar. It's really beautiful, you know, culturally fascinating. You have tropical rainforests, you have uh, deserts, uh, and you have some lovely beaches. And in that regard, I can recommend the island of uh, called Il Samari, uh, or I think the Malagasy for it is Nosy Bohara, or Bo- Nosy Boraha, if I remember rightly. And while you're in the neighborhood, I can also recommend visiting the Comoros Islands um, and Mauritius and the Seychelles. Um, uh, all of they're all going to be underwater soon. Yes, so visit them now while you can. Um, my second recommendation is I am a big fan of the weird uh, Dutch painter Hieronymus Bosch, and particularly mm. uh, Hieronymus Bosch. <laughs> I botched the Bosch. Uh, Hieronymus Bosch's Garden of Earthly Delights, one of the weirdest paintings in the world. If you are on Twitter and follow 
Bosh Bosh. Every day it tweets out little bits of the Garden of Earthly Delights. And it's a wonderful way to appreciate the painting because when you see the whole painting, it's so complicated. It's, you get almost confused. It's like a buffet where you can never actually eat anything, any particular dish with much satisfaction because there's just too much choice. But right. the Bosch bot just tweets out these little tiny pieces of the Garden of Earthly Delights, which are very humorous, funny, and uh, sometimes scary. Macabre. Yeah, very. I love that painting. And, you know, I, I think that in my younger days, when I I could look at it in, in altered mind states, I liked it even more. <laughs> <It was a laughs> maybe maybe there should be a, a listener advisory about that. That could be dangerous. Right, right, right. Listener advisory. Do not do not listen to me. Right. Jackson, what do you have for us? That's a great recommendation, Jeremy. Thanks. No, I appreciate it. But um, let us know, Jeremy, that uh, um, we did not hear anything about the people. Um, the histories or the food or the art of Madagascar, we only focused on the wildlife and the beaches, right? Ah, um, yeah, you know, so, so still, this, these, these things reappear. Um, but I appreciate, no, but I, I honestly appreciate them nonetheless. And I'm going to look up this painting. Um, I would also like to um, provide two recommendations. So first, just the, the book that really inspired a lot of this research. It was Joe Studwell's um, Asian Godfathers, oh, um, yeah. Money and Power in Southeast Asia kind of just breaking down the political and social dynamics around the myths of the godfather triad archetype. But secondly, I'd like to um, recommend a news brief. And I'm sure you guys have heard of this or heard this repeatedly. But um, Quartz, the, the news platform that focuses on, you know, the digital and globalizing economy, I'd like to recommend their weekly Africa brief. So every Sunday morning, I wake up to some beautiful missives from Quartz's Africa letter from Africa editors. Is that Lily? Lily? Doing well, no, so it was formerly, yeah, so Lily Kuo, um, who is currently no the relation. Beijing, yeah, who's currently the Beijing based, uh, um, or I guess the, the, what is it, the head of the Beijing office for The Guardian. Oh, right. Um, right, right. But she used to lead the China Africa coverage, but her, her, her stories are still sharp but anyway so the quartz africa team now it's genuinely diverse it's a it's a set of really sharp journalists based all over the continent they give uh some really compelling analysis on what's going on in african politics and art and culture they provide you with a schedule of key events whether it's book fairs or high level conferences to look out for some tech conferences well, I and they even oh and they even recommend um some music at the end of each week and it's it's a pleasure it's it's a staple of my sunday morning now oh wow that's great what a great recommendation thank uh, you I'm, I'm definitely gonna sign up right away thanks I, quartz thanks inca yeah thanks quartz <laughs> I am going to recommend taking up a new instrument in middle age, which is something I've done. Um, these days, with YouTube and, and whatnot, you know, there's just no shortage of, of, of instructional material. So, uh, in my case, uh, I know this is not for everybody, but I bought a very fine used drum kit. Uh, a real bargain, actually. It's a five-piece kit. Everything included, you know, all the cymbals and, and, and uh, all the hardware. Uh, just 600 bucks uh, off Facebook Marketplace. Um, I laugh because it's it's a Tama drum kit with Sabian cymbals, and there's this old Chinese joke from my my rock days in in in, in the capital. Um, we used to call them Tamada Gu and Sha the Cha, <laughs> huh. so, like Tama the you know Tama drums and Sabian cymbals. I just going to the beep that sorry, uh, but it's great. I I I learned to tune them. I started you know practicing my rudiments, the paradiddles and all that stuff. Um, 
learned a whole bunch of basic beats and I'm, um, you know, just growing up my, my, my fill vocabulary. It's just a ton of fun. Uh, it, it's in my little home studio room where I work and I write. And so whenever I'm blocked, I can just get up and bash for a while without having to plug stuff in or warm up amps and, and, and all that stuff. So it's, it's total immediate gratification and it's very primal. And then I can, yeah, I can write again. Uh, so I'm sure that would be the same if it were oboe or, or mandolin. Actually, I bought a mandolin too, but I suck on it. I'm so terrible. My fingers are too fat. I mean, it's tiny little frets. So I'm, 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 anyway, it's never too late. I say it's a ton of fun. Learn another instrument or learn your first one, Jeremy. I'm working on the triangle. Oh, okay. Oh, good, good, good. Can you sign me up, Jeremy? I need to work on my first, uh, first <laughs> instrument too. <laughs> Jackson, once again, uh, it was it was a ton of fun, man. I'm really glad you could join us for Seneca, and we have to chat with you again. No, the pleasure was mine, guys. Thank you so much. Jeremy, man, looking forward to having you back in the US of A. Thank you. Me too. All right. Well, enjoy the rest of your holiday. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing by Kaiser. Make sure to check out some of the other shows in the expanding universe of the Seneca Network, including our new show on women in China, New Voices. Uh, drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And tell a friend about our show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.